This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the final movie in our month of journalism films with Spotlight from 2015, written and directed by Tom McCarthy, co-written by Josh Singer, starring Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Liev Schreiber, John Slattery, and Stanley Tucci. Spotlight was nominated for six Academy Awards, winning two for Best Picture and Original Screenplay, making it the first Best Picture winner to win only two Oscars since 1952's The Greatest Show on Earth. This movie is primarily concerning the Boston Globe's initial investigation by the Spotlight team of the Catholic Church sexual abuse scandal. Dad, what historically do you remember about this and this period of the, I guess, early aughts as this was just kind of starting to come out? Oh, it came out before that. It started back in the 80s where there were rumblings and there were priests being accused, and but it was very spotty. It would be one here, one here, and then all of a sudden as the late 90s started, it became more prevalent in different areas and different communities. Then about the time this took place, it came out in just droves. And it became rather significant very quickly. And it became very clear that this was a systematic problem and not limited to a few bad apples. So the course of the movie takes place primarily in 2001, but I believe the initial article by the Spotlight team happens in either late 2001 or very early 2002. And 2002 became a very defining year for this particular scandal as it relates to Boston. But that means this has been around for 20 years of my 32-year life. And given that I believe that would have put me in sixth grade at the time, this has been a thing for the entirety of my adult life. I mean, that makes sense. That's pretty common for your age. But again, like I said, there were allegations made here and there, and it extended back further than that, but it has become pretty clear and pervasive over the last 20 years. And it's become obvious that what's taken place is that there's a significant portion, and I guess that's the question, I mean, in the movie they talk about about 6%. I guess I would say that's pretty significant, of priests who really did not remain celibate and were willing to utilize their their position to abuse. So first off, the figure that you cite from the movie is only of those that are potential child abusers, not those who are not celibate. And I do have some facts and figures on that for later on in the Did You Know section, but it's actually much higher than that as far as the degree to which religious celibacy among the priesthood is somewhat of a fallacy. But that's why the Catholic Church is the only denomination that maintains that. 
That being said, I think the biggest part as to what it relates to this movie is maybe then not because even the movie insinuates that they were publishing articles on the Catholic priests and some of these scandals, but it was on an individual basis as opposed to the system that protected them, one, which is, I think, the biggest part of what this movie brings out, but two, the widespread nature by which it infected the Catholic Church. Correct. I mean, the lack of celibacy within the priesthood has been a common theme for decades, longer than that. One of the most popular miniseries of the 1980s was The Thornbirds with Richard Chamberlain. And that was about a priest who gets involved in a uh, love affair with a woman in his parish. So I think one of the other things about this movie that is very telling to me is the way it portrays investigative journalism comparative to other newspaper reporters, the fact that we had a special team that picked its own projects and would sometimes work six months to two years on one particular subject and not really produce a lot of material. That's just not a common activity within most journalistic entities that I can remember. This clearly was a very specialized unit within the Boston Globe. But given how we've seen investigative journalism be treated over the last six years and its importance in not only uncovering stories about the Trump White House, or for that matter, the Me Too scandal and specifically the Harvey Weinstein of it, why are we not spending more resources on this kind of work? Because ultimately it's an issue of ratings and viewership and readership. I mean, we spent last week studying or reviewing Network, which was all about the need to have viewership and ratings. And putting that kind of money into these type of projects, while they're important, is it actually producing results which are measured by viewership and how many readers they have? I mean, the the most telling one is the Washington Post. And all the stuff they've done, the Pentagon Papers, the Watergate scandal, they were bankrupt. I mean, they basically were taken over by Jeff Bezos for nothing because they just couldn't make a go of it anymore. And Bezos made his money because he had the ability to know how to gear the newspaper to an online system that would generate revenue so that it would become either profitable or at least not lose money. And so that's what the problem is. I mean, if you has put this kind of resources into to a project like Spotlight, is it driving more readers? And if not, it's going to be hard for a publisher to continue to put money or resources in those, no matter how good a work they do. Well, let me introduce another aspect that we haven't really discussed throughout any of our journalism movies so far that I think is a important characteristic of modern journalism, and that's speed. I don't think that the salacious details that they're uncovering in investigative journalism is not salacious enough for readers. My thinking is, though, that because something like Spotlight 
can take anywhere from six months to two years to really get its teeth into something and make a thorough investigation. That's not enough content churned through on a daily basis that can keep up the readership in between those projects. And so by extension, it's not that they're losing readership based on what they're doing, but it's just not continuous enough of the content feeder machine that you need in order to keep regular subscribers or viewers. Well, and that's exactly the point I was making, which is if you're only producing stuff here or there in the in-between times, what's the incentive for readers to continue buying that newspaper? So what is your relationship to this movie? I saw this when the Academy Award conversations were beginning. I was trying to see all the Academy Award nominees. You had seen it first. I had watched it. Then after that, I watched it again. I don't know. Maybe it was about a year later on Netflix, which I thought was even more amazing because it was the first time I had just gotten a 4K television. So... I had actually got to see it on in that 4K and just could not believe the difference even between just high def and 4K high def. Seeing it twice within about a year, that's the relationship. I, I thought it was extremely well done. And going back to that time frame, this was the film that I thought was the best film of that year, although I thought The Big Short was an excellent film as well. And I think uh, the big short would have been my second choice. Spotlight was my first. I would agree. I think the biggest issue we had at the time, and like you had said, I saw this before you and thought this was the best movie that I saw. I really enjoyed the big short, but I thought this was just a slightly better film. That being said, there was a big push at the end. And we thought for sure because of the amount of Oscars it started to win over the course of the evening that The Revenant was going to win Best Picture. And neither of us thought that that movie was particularly good. We thought that the cinematography was great because it was the guy that had worked the year before on Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu's Birdman that won Best Picture. He came back and I think won again for cinematography and won for the same director's movie. The Revenant is very different from Birdman, I'll say that much. But I think the only thing that anyone's ever going to remember about The Revenant is that it was the movie that finally got DiCaprio over the hill as far as his Oscar. But it's not even a, a movie I would nominate to be on our list to cover during the course of the show. It's just not a particularly good movie. No, and for a performance, DiCaprio had probably a dozen films that I thought he did a better job. I mean, the only thing he did in this was move about and grunt. He had to show a lot of emotion through facial and body language, okay? But he was put through a lot of extreme conditions and had to convey a lot without saying much, which is unusual for a Best Actor winner, most of them are done based on a lot of dialogue and a lot of emotional dialogue. There was not that in this film. And so while I agree it's not his best performance, and to be quite honest, it's his version of A Scent of a Woman, it's not that his performance was bad. I won't go quite that far. But the movie's just not that interesting because it's basically a survival movie for him out in the wilderness 
and figuring out how to come back and essentially have his revenge. And yet there's really not much that's going on in the film as far as dialogue. It's a lot of action and it's frontier action, which is kind of limited. Could have been worse. Could have been frontier gibberish. Anyway, this is the movie that we're not discussing this evening. So let's get back to spotlight here. So then what is this movie about? Well, it's twofold. It's one about journalism or journalistic excellence. And it's two about sometimes going against the grain in order to uncover the truth. Well, I think it's the powerful role that investigative journalism has in uncovering systemic abuse within strong institutions. In this case, yes, it was the church, but I think at the time, and it's a very apt connection, this is our modern version of All the President's Men. It's not as acclaimed of a film, and I think All the President's Men will have a higher place all time, but I don't think it's any less watchable because this is interesting, and it has a lot of the same touch points of how the movie's constructed and how things are kind of put together, how the investigative team interacts and the interviews that they hold and that they're constantly being shadowed or followed. And these movies are always going to play well, particularly with Hollywood. Well, yeah, I I get that. And it's placing journalism in a, in a, a, a high profile and pointing out the effectiveness of what journalism can be. The only problem I have is, is that sometimes it portrays it beyond what is reality. I think for large part, journalism is not as altruistic as it is in Spotlight. It's a lot of covering the minutia. It's a lot of just putting stuff in print to inform people about basic things. And I think it it kind of puts more onus on investigation and a particular area and makes it more, it emphasizes it when it is out of the ordinary, I'll put it that way. So it basically makes it sexy. Correct. Because I, I can't tell you, I mean... Most of the time, in my dealings with the press, and I've dealt with the press for years for various things, probably most of my adult life, they get more wrong than they almost than they get right, at least in some cases. And it's very rare that you get this elite group that actually goes beyond just the mundane and does something more impactful. So let's give everybody some background on the film then. Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. When the Boston Globe hires a new editor, Marty Barron, Liev Schreiber, he encourages the spotlight team of crack investigators and reporters to pursue a story which would implicate the Catholic Church in systemic sexual abuse and subsequent cover-up, primarily of children. The team of Walter Robbie Robinson, Michael Keaton, Michael Resendez, Mark Ruffalo, Sasha Pfeiffer, Rachel McAdams, and Matt Carroll, Brian Darcy James, at first find only one or two priests who abuse children, 
but soon discovered the magnitude of the abuse with the help of lawyer Mitchell Garabedian, Stanley Tucci. As the team pursues support for the story, they face wide-ranging roadblocks set up by the church, even within the courts, the greater Boston community, and the local government. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Mark Ruffalo as Michael Resendez, Michael Keaton as Walter Robbie Robinson, Rachel McAdams as Sasha Pfeiffer, Brian Darcy James as Matt Carroll, Liev Schreiber as Marty Barron, John Slattery as Ben Bradley Jr., Stanley Tucci as Mitchell Garabedian, Gene Amoroso as Stephen Kirkchen, Jamie Sheridan as Jim Sullivan, Billy Crudup as Eric McLeish, Maureen Kyler as Eileen McNamara, Richard Jenkins as Richard Sype, uncredited, Paul Gilfoyle as Peter Conley, Len Carriou as Cardinal Bernard Law, and Neil Huff as Phil Saviano. Recognition for this movie? Spotlight was wide released on November 6, 2015. The film grossed $4.4 million in the first weekend during its wide release, finishing 8th at the box office. Spotlight grossed $45.1 million in the U.S. and Canada, and $53.2 million in other countries for a worldwide total of $98.3 million, against a production budget of $20 million. The Hollywood Reporter calculated the film made a net profit of up to $10 million. Spotlight has been critically acclaimed and has been included in many critics' top 10 film lists of 2015. The film has received over 100 industry and critics' awards and nominations. The American Film Institute selected Spotlight as one of the top 10 films of that year. At the Academy Awards, the film received six nominations including Best Picture, Director, Supporting Actor for Mark Ruffalo, Supporting Actors for Rachel McAdams, Original Screenplay and Film Editing, winning Best Picture and Original Screenplay. At the time of its win, the film had made $39.2 million at the North American box office, which made it the second lowest domestically grossing film adjusted for ticket price inflation to win Best Picture within the past four decades after The Hurt Locker won it in 2009 with only $17 million. Spotlight currently holds a 93% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 93 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? The screenplay for this film was featured in the 2013 Blacklist, a list of the most liked unmade scripts of the year. Did you know? Director Tom McCarthy cited multiple films as influence on this project, including Frost Nixon from 2008, Broadcast News from 1987, Network from 1976, All the President's Men from 1976, The Killing Fields from 1984, The Insider from 1999, Citizen Kane from 1941, Ace in the Hole from 1951, JFK from 1991, The Verdict from 1982, and Good Night and Good Luck from 2005, in which McCarthy had a small role. Did you know? A study of Swiss priests published on May 12, 2003 revealed that 50% of that clergy had mistresses, similar to the report by the Spotlight team this Boston Globe published in 2002. Father Victor Kotze, a South African sociologist, surveyed Catholic priests in his country in 1991 and found that 45% had been sexually active. Over all these studies, 53% of sexually active priests surveyed were having sex with adult women, 21% with adult men, 14% with minor boys, and 12 with minor girls. These statistics caused a monumental debate in which no one challenged the reality of his numbers. 
Pepe Rodriguez concluded that 95% of practicing priests masturbate, 7% are sexually involved with minors, 26% have attachment to minors, 60% have heterosexual relations, and 20% have homosexual relations, and on average across the globe, only 50% of Catholic clergy are legitimately celibate. Did you know? A victim asks a reporter, have you read Jason Berry's book? Barry is a reporter who began covering sex abuse cover-ups in Louisiana Catholic churches for the National Catholic Reporter and the Times of Acadiana. By the time the Boston Globe broke the story of the abuse scandal in Boston, the NCR had been reporting on abuse within the church for 17 years, while other much bigger news outlets had refused to look at it. Did you know? During an interview on National Public Radio's Fresh Air, director Tom McCarthy said that they built a large set to depict many of the Boston Globe offices where parts of the story take place. When the reporters depicted in the movie first visited the set, they gravitated to their desks, and many of them started to arrange the items on those desks the way they had been at the time. Did you know? In the baseball game scene, the real Michael Resendez, Sasha Pfeiffer, and Walter Robinson can be seen in the background. Did you know? When the real Walter Robinson visited the set, he was very impressed after seeing Michael Keaton sitting at an exact copy of his desk, a two-fingered typist just like him, his lips pursed, peering through reading glasses at a 2001 Globe computer screen. Did you know? The real Walter Robinson said of Michael Keaton, It is like watching yourself in a mirror, yet having no control of the mirror image. Did you know? When Michael Keaton accepted the role, he had tracked the real Walter Robinson before meeting him and found out he actually lived near Robinson's home. He had also gotten hold of video and audio of Robinson. When Keaton first met him, he did an impression of him that was so impressive that Robinson was scared and said to him, How do you know everything about me? We just met. Did you know? The one thing Michael Keaton was afraid of when he accepted the role was the Boston accent. After watching video footage of the real Walter Robinson, he was surprised that Robinson only has a slight Boston accent. Did you know? As of the film's release, Michael Resendez was the only journalist involved in the investigation still working on the Spotlight team. Did you know? Jimmy LeBlanc, who plays Patrick McSorley, was himself an actual survivor of the clerical abuse scandal. So when Tom McCarthy first brought him in for rehearsals with Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, and Stanley Tucci, he was concerned that revisiting Jimmy's abusive past might be too emotionally traumatic for him. However, as McCarthy later accompanied Jimmy out after this session, he asked him if he was freaked out by his first acting experience with the other actors. Jimmy responded, Of course I'm freaked out. That was the Hulk, Batman, and the guy from The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing The Great Escape from 1963 for Veterans Day, directed by John Sturges, story by Paul Brickhill, starring Steve McQueen, James Garner, Charles Bronson, Richard Attenborough, James Coburn, and Donald Pleasance. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance, who do you have down? Mark Ruffalo. There was so much about this performance that was very emotional and raw. I think this is probably one of the best acting performances of Mark Ruffalo I've seen. How much acting do you have to really do to be the Hulk? But this 
went down to more of his more raw acting abilities to show his indignation and his passion about the story. So I thought his performance was exceptional. It's no wonder he won the Academy for Best Supporting Actor for it. He did not. Oh, well, excuse me. It's no wonder he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, he is. I think this is his only nomination to date, if I remember correctly. Most of his films have been fairly easygoing, popcorn-esque stuff. No, excuse me. I, I take that back. I think he was nominated for, was it Dreamcatcher? Or, no, excuse me, Foxcatcher, the DuPont story. Yes. And the uh, American wrestling team. Anyway, beside the point. There are not a lot of movies that Mark Ruffalo has gotten to show his range. And one of the things that was striking to me that's comparatively different to just about every other role, he seems like he's a guy that's fairly comfortable in his own skin. This is a movie where he's playing out of character the whole time. That he seems like he's very nervous and anxious with everything that he does. And I think if we were to have video comparisons against the real Mike Resendez, I think that we would see him as a potentially anxious individual. So I think that goes into his performance a lot too, but it also creates a certain tone, an unsettled nature, a guy that always wants to push and he's nervous about a whole lot of things potentially going wrong with any of his stories but that makes him good at his job is that sense of fear and apprehension that's always lurking around every corner. And so I thought that was one particularly good aspect that he got a hold of for this movie. Now, there are certainly a couple of scenes where he really dials it up and pushes, I would say, a little bit too far to the point of maybe some overacting, particularly the very famous they knew speech, but... We'll get to that later in best quote. Yes. I had him as my best secondary performer. My best primary performer, or best performer overall, I actually had Tom McCarthy. I think it's difficult to create a modern version of a beloved film. And I don't bestow it with the title of The Modern All the President's Men lightly. That is a movie that is so mythologized, particularly among journalists, that it's tough to create another movie that gets the tone correct, let alone all of the writing. Now, there were some creative liberties within the structure of the screenplay, but I think I also saw somewhere that somebody did an estimate as to its the screenplay's accuracy on historical events, and they came back with that like 76% and yes, I know that's a really specific number, but like 76% of the script was entirely accurate as to what actually took place. So for you to work within the bounds of actual reality, create an entertaining and frankly rewatchable screenplay, set a tone that is respectful of the topic and the subject that you're commenting on, but also makes it entertaining and at the same time, comparable to some of its predecessors, I think that's a really difficult accomplishment that he strung all of that together. And so 
not only from a writing standpoint, but the direction of this movie, which I thought he actually didn't get enough credit for at the time. I thought this was a particularly good performance by him. I think he did a very admirable job. I just didn't pick him per se because, I don't know, I think that it was more collaborative. The screenwriter itself, uh, the director had a, a, a large role in it, but I think a large part he was able, and I would give him credit for drawing out some fairly good acting performances among the cast. But that still goes to his directorship being able to get that out of a fairly, I would say, star-studded cast. That was very diverse in experiences and backgrounds. Yeah, because I think outside of this, Liev Schreiber doesn't really do a lot of straight dramas. Most of the stuff that he's in is probably action, but then you're putting him across the table from John Slattery, who's famous for doing Mad Men. And then throwing in Michael Keaton, who's famous for doing Batman and comedies. I mean, that's a fairly eclectic group to put together, but create a fairly cohesive, and I would say charismatic ensemble. Agreed. Who was your best secondary? I had uh, Rachel McAdams. And quite frankly, I've been watching Rachel McAdams for, I don't know, what is it, better part of 15 years or more. I think The Notebook was the first time I had ever seen her in a major film. And I actually thought this was probably the best performance she's given. It was mature. It was not, I don't want to use this term inappropriately. I mean, at times her characters are not overly serious. So I don't know if she's ever actually had to perform anything that was of substance. And I think this is the first time she actually had a part that had real meat. And I thought she rose to the expectations. So I thought if there's one thing I could really say about her performance and I could give or take, I I didn't think that she detracted from the film in any way. I didn't think that she overly supported it, but I think one of the few tones that she struck well within this movie is that she created an empathetic vulnerability that you have to have as a reporter and treated the subject matter fairly. A lot of the juicy parts of this movie were not written for her. She was for most of the time a background player. And while she did get a few scenes, they were mostly her being the listener and putting down some shoe leather. But for the most part, she was not going to be one of the primary people in this movie. This movie is supposed to be structured around Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo. And so her getting third, fourth, fifth billing, she did an admirable job, but it just wasn't a movie that was supposed to be built around her. I understand your point. I just think she did a very good job for what she had available. My most charismatic is Michael Keaton. This was like the Michael Keaton renaissance He disappeared for a long time, but between Birdman and then he did this movie, and I think not long after he did The Founder. Those were like the three big movies back to back to back that seemed to signal, oh, Michael Keaton's back because he'd just kind of been gone for a long time. He was a fairly large name through the late 80s, early 90s, especially when he got to doing Beetlejuice and Batman. 
But by the time we get to the like the late 90s, his corner had been vacated more or less as far as a A-list actor. And for somebody of his broad quality and talent, I thought that this was a performance that reminded me, oh, that's the Michael Keaton I used to love. Well, yeah, and I had him as well. There's just a certain quality that he has that comes across on the screen. He is likable, whether it's him being funny or being serious. You just root for him. And I don't know what it is about him that's like that or what causes that or why you have a likeness to him. You know, I mean, at the time that he was cast as Batman, everybody kind of gasped because he was a comedic actor. But what he brought to Batman was a likeness and a vulnerability, despite the fact that the character was dark and almost nemesing, so that you had a rooting interest for him as the character. And he brings that forward. Even the stuff he's done since, he was given a, I believe he won the Emmy for Dope Sick. And I watched most of that. I watched it with your mother and uh, didn't see everything, but I saw enough to see that the level of performance he gave. Again, this was a situation where this is an individual who you could easily develop a, a, a hatred for, but he is able to portray the character as sympathetic and somebody you're hoping will be able to come through the other side and overcome the problems that he's facing. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he's so charismatic is, is because he has that quality that you root for him no matter what the circumstances. Yes, I would tend to agree that he's somebody that you can place in very unlikable characters and their only redeeming quality is is that they're played by Michael Keaton and so then they work. And that's a talent. Not many people have that. Best scene. I have down new editor, so the introduction of Liev Schreiber as the new editor of the Boston Globe, kind of our introduction to him. Then his first real meeting with John Slattery and... Michael Keaton, Ken Spotlight look into Gagan, then the first appearance of Mitchell Garabedian, Snap and the victim interview, so I kind of just lumped that all together, basically from about the beginning of the Phil Saviano interview through the end of all of the priest and victim interviews, so kind of in a lump sum because it, it kind of becomes its own montage a little bit. Then them discovering the directories, which I think is an important scene. Richard Sipe in The Scale of the Scandal. So the scene that I stopped the other day while we were watching it and kind of pointed out to you where he's on the phone and they're really figuring out the scale to which this problem is or this scandal is. The release of the documents. So they finally get the unsealing, but I'll even put in the letters from Cardinal Law that were put in this discovery motion. Going to print, so basically the last steps before they actually put it together and are going to put it out. And then the epilogue, which is kind of the title cards at the end of the movie. Out of these, what do you think is the best scene? I had to think long and hard because I have two scenes that I thought worked really well. The one that I ultimately did not go with was the initial with Baron meeting with 
Ben Bradley Jr. and Robbie. Instead, I went with the whole scene of them discovering the information in the church directories, because I think a large portion of journalism and reporting of history, reporting of facts, is sometimes finding what everyone is missing that has been in plain sight the whole time. Those directories were there for years, and no one understood what they meant or the impact the stuff had on the circumstances contained within those pages. And to me, that is so revealing of the discovery process of trying to piece together things is to look at something and go, this has a meaning no one anticipated or thought of before. So that was not the scene that I went with before best scene, but it is probably my favorite scene because I think it's where the movie really pushes at the limits of its momentum. I think that it starts to pick up momentum right around the point where Saviano is first introduced, but it really hits top speed about the point where they start to figure out that there are these little monikers about the directories as to the codes that they use for priests who are obviously in in part of the scandal. And so I think there is a sense that oh, they've uncovered something bigger. And that's when things start to really take off in this movie. And so from a story structure standpoint, it's just one of the points in the movie where I feel like you can really, if this were on cable, and I don't think it is very often, if ever, it would be about the point where, oh, that's coming up. I'll sit down and watch because that's going to be an important jumping off point for the rest of the movie. As far as the best scene, though, I will again point back to the one that I kind of did before and that I did while we were watching it the other day. As far as the subtlety of the acting, the voice work that was going on over the phone by Richard Jenkins, and I'm not sure why he's uncredited, but a very good performance by him. And again, Richard Jenkins is a not appreciated enough actor, as far as I'm concerned, but throw in that, and then how they visually convey the scene. I thought it was very impactful for me as the scene unfolds and the camera widens on the reporters as they're trying to listen and they understand the scale to which this is finally going on and it feels revelatory so that this is no longer Stephen Gagan, I think it was Stephen, or one or two priests, or a couple of deals struck here or there. We're really talking not 15, not 20, but 90 priests in the greater Boston area. Now we have something on our hands that's systemic institutional abuse, and it's not just child abuse. And so for me, from an impactful standpoint, that's why I went with it as best. So what was your favorite scene then? I I guess it's when uh, Marty Baron comes into the newsroom and meets with Ben Bradley and Robbie, because at that point, he more or less says, I've got this great tool in Spotlight, and I want to take the gloves off and use this to potentially hit at an issue that I think has some significance but that everybody's been avoiding because 
this is Boston and this is the church. And so they kind of avoided the topic and he is not going to have that. He is going to direct and, and use that. And so for me, that's my favorite scene because he has the attitude of, I don't care. I'm going to do what I think is right. Again, I'm going to need you to clarify because there are two different scenes within the first part of the movie where he sets down a marker as to what he wants done. One being when he decides in the managerial staff meeting that he, for all intents and purposes, wants to sue the church. So that's the opening one with everybody there. Then there's the individualized one where he specifically asks Spotlight to pick up the Gagan case. It's hard to differentiate them. I guess the initial is for them to specifically pursue the case to begin with, which is, I don't care if it means we have to sue the church. We're going to find out what's going on so that we have some idea and can actually shed some light on something that is generally considered too sensitive for a Boston newspaper to pursue. Okay. Most indelible moment for me, though, is the epilogue. It always has been. For just being a couple of title cards tacked on at the end of the movie, where in all of these historical movies or these one based on a true story, and they kind of give you the rest of the story, it's the only one of real substance where I've carried it with me ever since I saw the film the initial time. And it's just due to, even though you know that this is widespread, it's how much being put in front of your eyes that is impactful and leaves a lasting impression. At one point in time, I was involved in a service organization in the 90s, and uh, a local priest was involved in that service organization who was ultimately defrocked as part of this scandal. So even in my small city of 21,000 people, we had a couple of priests who were ultimately defrocked as a result of abuse. So I can I can see just the whole point and realize how impactful that could ultimately be. Your most indelible. I know it seems somewhat overacted, but Ruffalo's speech to me, that's when I think of the film, that's always what I go back to. Yeah, it could be deemed as being overacted, but by the same token, I've seen a lot of people with that level of passion, and I can understand where he's coming from because at times I've been that angry about a situation. Usually it's a situation where I have some ability to have an impact or a say in it, and I'm struggling to get traction in doing it. So when you say that, you know, and there's comments about overacting in that, I, I don't see that as much as I just see the sheer anger and passion as to what you're doing and the frustrations you have in carrying it forward. So to me, that's always going to be the most indelible moment. I'm sorry. I just don't know too many people that are emotionally going to outburst at their boss over something that they deem to be righteous anger and not have any repercussions. Oh, You haven't been in a law office. I was for a long time. 
Yeah, but with me being the only primary lawyer within the office, if you're within a, a, a confines of an office, this level of righteous indignation, when you have a partner's meeting and you're up trying to plead your case as to how to handle a decision or a situation or handle a client, this stuff happens a lot more than you think. And that righteous indignation occurs quite often among lawyers, some who are more cold and calculated, some of whom are more impassioned. And you just give each other slack because once in a while you'll end up in a situation where that righteous indignation just has to come out. Otherwise, it just builds within you and eats you alive. I just don't think this is happening on an average Tuesday for people of the newsroom, but maybe I'm wrong, never having been in any sort of journalistic capacity myself. And with that, we'll take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, just a quick note that I've been mentioning the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com for a few weeks now, and I've been working on it for a couple of months. It is now finished and ready for everyone to see. You can check out the show notes for every episode of the show so far, as well as the master ranking list of movies we've done so far. The links are right in the episode descriptions of every episode, so just click on the Greatest Movie of All Time tab at the top of the site if you go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com, and you can find everything right there for you. Please go check it out. All right, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, unfortunately we do. Ron Masick. 86, American actor, Murder, She Wrote, Torah, 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 Evil Knievel, known as the king of commercials for his voiceovers. He's one of those guys that when I saw his picture, I go, oh yeah, him. He's been around as long as I have been paying attention to television and movies. When you look at a picture of him, you'll immediately recognize him from commercials, from guest appearances from various other movies where he's had minor roles. Been actively involved in charity work with Wounded Warriors, Child Help, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, Special Olympics, and the uh, Jerry Lewis MDA Labor Day Telethon. So long, long career and very successful. Michael Kopsa, 66, a Canadian actor, was in X-Men Evolution, Highlander, The X-Files, Smallville, and The Fantastic Four. Longtime voice actor. So he was a longtime voice actor for things including Ninjago, Alien Racers, and Princess Castle. He also did a lot of voiceover work for a lot of video games as well. Chet Walker, 68, American choreographer, actor, and director, was involved in On the Town, Pippin, and directed Fosse. Yes, he was in four different Bob Fosse Broadway musicals, and as a result, he was one of the perfect candidates to help be the choreographer and the director for the eventual Bob Fosse musical from 1999. He was also in the Tony-nominated 2013 revival of Pippin, where he was actually nominated for his choreographic work. I forgot to mention that Fosse in 1999 also won the Best Musical Tony Award that year. Jules Bass, 87, American animator and television producer. His Rankin and Bass Productions did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman, and The Last Unicorn, 
predominantly brought stop action animation and claymation to television in the 60s. He also did Santa Claus is Coming to Town with Fred Astaire and Mickey Rooney. Those are still staples as far as I can remember from kids even up through now as to uh, Christmas productions and movies that are on at least every year for Christmas on the network TV. Was the business partner of Arthur Rankin in the Rankin Bass Productions that you mentioned before. And he also won a Peabody for the animated version of The Hobbit in 1980. The next two I'm going to kind of take together. Joanna Simon, 85, American opera singer and sister of Carly Simon. The next day, we lost Lucy Simon, 82, American composer, The Secret Garden, and a folk singer with Carly Simon, her sister, with the Simon sisters in the 60s, early 70s. She was also a Grammy winner for her work in 1981 as well as 83. Leslie Jordan, 67, American actor was on Will and Grace, Hearts of Fire, Call Me Cat. Emmy winner in uh, 2006. Was well known for guest appearances and things such as uh, Murphy Brown in the 90s, uh, among other things. He was certainly an LGBTQ icon who appeared as a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race in the early 2010s. Was an Instagram famous person or personality during the pandemic for a lot of his comedic videos and was a guest judge on The Masked Singer as recently as I think two years ago, as well as released his own gospel music album, Companies Coming. And so we remember all these here for their contributions with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best lines, funniest lines. My first one, Marty Baron. Sometimes it's easy to forget that we spend most of our time stumbling around in the dark. Suddenly, a light gets turned on and there's a fair share of blame to go around. I can't speak to what happened before I arrived, but all of you have done some very good reporting here. Reporting that I believe is going to have an immediate and considerable impact on our readers. For me, this kind of story is why we do this. Robbie Robinson. We've got two stories here. A story about a generic clergy and a story about a bunch of lawyers turning child abuse into a cottage industry. Which story do you want us to write? Because we're writing one of them. Mitchell Garabedian. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. Marty Barron. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put the same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systematic, that it came from the top down. I'm going to leave the Mike Resendez speech for you since you liked it more than I did. So, I'll go with Cardinal Law. If I can be of any help, Marty, don't hesitate to ask. I find that the city flourishes when its great institutions work together. Marty Barron. Thank you. Personally, I'm of the opinion that for a paper to best perform its function, it really needs to stand alone. Robbie. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that we'll put into this. Mike Resendez. Then let's take it up to Ben and let him decide. Robbie. 
We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. Like, it's time, Robbie. It's time. They knew. They let it happen to kids, okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show that nobody can get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. Peter Canellos. They say it's just physical abuse, but it's more than that. This was spiritual abuse. You know why I went along with everything? Because priests are supposed to be the good guys. I have two more. Sasha Pfeiffer. Joe, did you ever try and tell anyone? Joe Crawley. Like who? A priest? My last one. Mike Resendez. Do you still go to Mass? Richard Sipe. No, I haven't been to church for some time now, but I still consider myself a Catholic. How does that work? The church is an institution, Mike, made of men. It's passing. My faith is in the eternal. I try to separate the two. A good lesson for us all. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. What do you have down? For the industry, I think there's still a lot of people who believe this is a really good movie. I give it a 3.5 because I think it's lost some of its luster in the last seven years. For the public, I'm surprised at how many people really remember the film. Even people who've seen it, they'll go, oh yeah, that's a great film, or yeah, I remember that, and then really don't think about it. It's not on the public conscious. So I went with three for the public. In fact, I would probably even say three is a little high. So 6.5 total, but I could be persuaded for lower. Well, we're very similar, but just slightly different in both categories or both sections, but come to a very similar number. So first off, I would agree with you that I think from an industry standpoint, Yes, we're seven years removed, and I think several of them still remember it. I think from an institutional standpoint, it still doesn't hold the same weight journalistically or within Hollywood that All the President's Men does. But I do think this movie does have its champions. They're few and far between, but it does have a few. And so right now, I think from a, a legacy standpoint, because it's still close enough to the movie that... I think enough people remember it. It was on Netflix for a long time, so it's been kind of around and in circulation. I only went with a four for the industry as far as the legacy. From the public standpoint, I think this is a movie that had a moment right around the time it won Best Picture, and it wasn't a very long moment, and then it's kind of been forgotten. Again, I think you and I are probably two of its biggest champions if we're part of the industry now. So if that counts, then we're not even part of the public that I would take into account for this number. So I went with a two for a six overall, just because I don't think that this has a lot of memory for people that even saw the movie. And it wasn't like it was a publicly lauded film at the time, and it wasn't one that a lot of people saw. So given that it was the second lowest inflation adjusted grossing Oscar movie of all time, you know, it's just not one of those that I would expect to see on these like all time public favorites lists, even though I think it's a fairly rewatchable film. I'm going to go back down on public to 2.5. That's where I kind of had been 
and I waffled back and forth. So I'm going to go with a six total. Well, thank you for making the math easier then. It's a six average between the two of us. As far as impact significance, I think, again, in the moment, this is a film that said, okay, Mark Ruffalo can do things other than just be either charismatic and likable or be the Hulk. And he has some dramatic acting chops. It got him a few other roles down the line for some better meatier parts as far as dramatic work. I think he's done a couple of TV things now that have really enhanced his career, but I would say that his work in Fox Kitcher probably doesn't come about unless it is for this movie. You could say the same for the second part of Michael Keaton's career, although I think you'd probably put more importance on him being in Birdman because that was his real coming back party. But this one pretty much kind of sealed, oh yeah, Michael Keaton's going to be back and he's going to be doing a lot of things. So from an industry standpoint, I think it does raise to the level of a five, even though it was not one of our most celebrated Best Picture winners of the time. For the public, though, because it had relatively low box office numbers that outside of what people were living from a news standpoint and the Catholic Church scandal, I don't think this one had as much of an impact on that story because it was kind of evolving past this at this point already. And so I think it kind of came and went. It had its moment and it was short-lived. So I'm going to go for a 2.5 on this one. And uh, so that's a 7.5 overall for me. The industry, because it won Best Picture and was nominated for some others, I don't think it quite hit the same mark in the industry that you did. So I went with a four. And then for the public, I went a little higher because I think for those who saw it, they thought it was a really well done film and made quite the impression. So I went with a three. So seven. All right. So then that's a 7.25 between us. Novelty then. As I said, this is a modern All the President's Men. So I can't give this like huge novelty marks it's made off the backs of all the other journalism movies that we've celebrated for years it's just a really good version of that and it has some really good characters its relevance is still high its relatability is high and its execution raise this in my estimation so i will go with a six and i think that's a little bit nice comparatively i think how it was presented was modernized So I gave it a little bit higher than you did. I went with a seven because I think that it brought a lot of those older films more current into how journalism is done more in the last couple of decades. I suppose that's a fair point, but that makes a 6.5 average between the two of us. Classicness. Even when this was released, the story wasn't novel by that point. I mean, we're talking of a gap 14 years, 13 years, it still gives power behind this kind of journalism, though, and how we've needed it over the last seven years since this originally came out and continue needing it now. There aren't many major issues within the movie for diversity or inclusion. Otherwise, we'd have to argue with the hiring policies in 2001 of the Boston Globe. (laughs) And the accuracy and the facts of this movie are substantially true with some minor creative licensing that I don't think you could quibble with too hard. 
if you're talking about a movie is 75% accurate to its historical story, that might as well be 100% accurate to events because Hollywood takes a lot of license with stuff that they keep saying is true stories. So I don't find too much fault even in that, which could usually trip up some of these based on a true story type movies. So I'm going for a nine right now, but I think this would easily grow into about a 10 maybe 10 or 15 years from now, as we add in the timelessness factor, the farther distance we get from the initial release of this movie. So I have a nine. I also have a nine. We have a very timeless story. The idea of very gifted and dedicated journalists. We have at least one female lead who's actively involved in a key part of it. We do have minority contribution because that's part of this story is the fact that the elements commenting among the church as being this is being propagated by a Jew, Marty Baron. So that's why I went with a nine. Rewatchability. To me, this is eminently rewatchable despite its subject material and its kind of dour conclusions. And I don't watch this very often, but it's very easy for me to be sucked into this when I put it on. So I'm going to go with an eight. This is one where I have to be in the right frame of mind. It's a very good film and it's easy to watch and it's easy to follow along and not have to be really on top of your game in order to appreciate, but Given the nature of it and what I do for a living and spend most of my days, this is not going to be something I necessarily migrate to on a day where I just need to relax. So I went a little lower than you with a 7.5. So that's a 7.75 average between the two of us. Audience score for this one, we had an 87% for Google users and 93% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9 So to repeat the categories, we had a 6 for Legacy, 7.25 for Impact Significance, 6.5 for Novelty, 9 for Classicness, 7.75 for Rewatchability, and a 9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 45.5. And that will currently place it on the list, tied with 7 Samurai. Okay. That doesn't feel quite right, but I understand. No, I understand, and I... We're getting to the point where we have enough movies on here, wherever it sits. We kind of look at these and go, uh, uh, is that, but without going through and reweighing all the different films again, it's kind of difficult to know whether or not we actually did one film correct or another film correct or. Well, the reason that I say that it doesn't feel right is because that's celebrated as being one of the best movies of all time, which I've said for the course of this show, that best is different from favorite is different from greatest, that all three of those things are very different. The best Star Wars movie is different than the greatest Star Wars movie is different from my favorite Star Wars movie. And that's how you have to look at these. Our ranking system overweights because we want to have a public appreciation of things. How many greatest movies lists are made by critics and directors and they're for stuff that nobody's watched? Yeah. 
And so ours overweights for public input, not only in an audience score perspective, but they have weight as far as the impact and significance initially in its release, in its overall legacy, and they have some weight as far as how the culture is from a classicness standpoint on a lot of these things. So we're subjecting ourselves, even on a rewatchability standpoint, to responding to the public at large. And yes, maybe it's from an American perspective, but given that the majority of movies were made in America for the last 120 years, it's hard not to have that be the predominant ruling force in our scoring system. And that being said, we've had enough foreign guests that have helped on individual movies give us some different perspectives. So when you say Spotlight, a movie that won Best Picture, is tied with a 70-year-old Japanese film, you know, I can see why that happens because maybe it is American-centric in our thinking, but also because just the general public how many of them have probably seen Seven Samurai by comparison to Spotlight or vice versa? True. So I understand it from a, a debate and a math and a rankings perspective. It just, if you were to look at this list just blindly without knowing all the context, you would say, what the hell are these guys doing? Well, and again, we, we do talk about public and we try to perceive, and we're coming at this from middle America, Wisconsin, to white Americans living in upper the upper Midwest, who are father and son, who have a certain perspective, and maybe ours is just wrong, but we're also looking at this more from that middle America perspective, not East Coast or West Coast, which tends to be a little different than the heartland of America. I don't want to say we're flyover country, but her show is what it is. And, you know, it's our perception and what we perceive based on what we have. We have some level of diversity within the the middle of America, but it's not quite as diverse as other regions of America, nor we're, we're, we're doing this, and whether you agree with us or disagree with us, that's the point. If you want to disagree with us, fine. At least it starts a conversation about the topic, and that's the whole point of the show. Remaining questions, I don't have any. This is mostly historically accurate, and by doing so, it's only giving you the first part of this story The rest of it you could easily find in basically a Google search of the history of the Spotlight team and all they worked on and probably find most of their old articles from the early 2000s for free online. So I just don't see the point in asking too many questions as to what was going on, especially with something that's been so public for so long. But do you have any? No, and I would point out, I personally have an annual subscription to the New York Times, and I believe that part of the New York Times archive that I have access to, because they own the Boston Globe, has access to the archives of the Boston Globe as well. So if you have that and you want to review some of this, I would encourage you to do so because I think these are very good stories and very poignant. 
Okay, so final thoughts for the week. So I've been using this space to pretty much just recommend stuff that I've been watching lately. A show that had been critically acclaimed recently, even despite it being a piece of franchise IP, has been the new Star Wars series Andor on Disney+. And I was having a very difficult time getting into it recently. I think it's kind of a slow burn. It's written by Tony Gilroy, the acclaimed screenwriter who also wrote Rogue One, based on a character from that movie. And this is kind of the prologue to that movie of sorts. But it took me about three episodes, and now I can see why people are have been suggesting it for a while among the critics. It takes about three episodes. So if you have time to kind of sit through and plod for a, a couple of episodes, it ends up being very much a good kind of war film, very much in the same vein as a movie we're going to discuss next week, The Great Escape or a Bridge on the River Kwai type of movie. Some of those classic throwback World War II type of movies instead of more of the Vietnam era type things. And so even though it's a Star Wars property, I think it's actually something that you might like, Dad, even though you have no affinity for anything else that's going on in that universe. Well, I mean, I I saw the original Star Wars films. I've watched some of the others as time has went by, but I watched the Star Trek series, watched the initial films. So I have some. It's just not what I migrate to, but... Yeah, maybe. I, uh, I'm i trying to keep a more open mind and trying to be more broad in my likes, dislikes, and uh, trying new things. Well, like I said, it's not really a Star Wars-centric property. It has nothing to do with Jedi or all these fantastical elements so much as this is a character who finds his way into the Rebellion against the Empire and it has a lot of elements of this kind of World War II concept of the resistance type of sure. structure. And so it, it really does play on a lot of those old, like, 50s and 60s World War II movies. Two things. First off, you and I went and saw a film. This is not going to be one of these that's going to necessarily be nominated for best film of all time or that the greatest film of all time, The Ticket to Paradise, which is George Clooney and Julia Roberts. It was a fun film. It's just a film that you can go and sit and enjoy. Have some popcorn, some, uh, as I do, raisinets, which are one of my favorites. And just have a good evening watching a film without having much thought and just have fun. And I missed that during the pandemic. And I enjoyed just going out and doing that last night. The second point I'd make is, is I apologize if anybody's wondering. I'm battling a cold. It's been getting worse as the day has progressed. And so I apologize if my voice sounds different or scratchy. But living in the upper Midwest as the temperatures are changing and we're fastly approaching into November, it is what it is. I guess thank you, and I look forward to next week, which is The Great Escape, which is one of my favorite films. And one of the films that I remember sitting and watching several times with my dad. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. 
Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing The Great Escape from 1963 for Veterans Day. Directed by John Sturges, story by Paul Brickhill, starring Steve McQueen, James Garner, Charles Bronson, Richard Attenborough, James Coburn, and Donald Pleasance. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 